Welcome to the much delayed and anticipated DEP in-basin observations podcast. It's been a while since we released a new episode of the podcast, but this one should be interesting. We're going to try to get a few more in before the end of the year. Today, we're going to do a little recap of what we've been up to this fall. We'll discuss our most recent and newest event, the DEP Upstream and Planning Outlook Forum. Oh, it's a tongue twister. No special guests today, but the esteemed DEP team. Our event featured 12 panels throughout the day, covering a diverse range of topics. And we're going to have the team discuss everything that went on in it. So in the office today or on the Zoom call, we've got John Daniel and then Sean Mitchell, Blake McLean and Bill Austin. Um, we're going to try to keep this to a manageable 20 to 30 minutes with this group. We'll try not to step on each other's toes too much, but let's get right to it. And before we kick off too much, John, why don't you tell us about some of the upcoming DEP events? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, and apologies for the shameless plug, but uh, we've got a few things that are coming up here. Uh, we've got our uh, annual quarterly reception, excuse me, in the, in the Permian on December 5th. Uh, we'll quickly follow that up with our Christmas party on December 7th in Houston. But the, uh, the two bigger events that are out there in the first quarter, we'll have our the fourth annual Thrive Energy Conference. That's on February 20th and 22nd. Our agenda is nearly complete, and probably by the time we, we post this podcast, it will be complete. Uh, we've got a great lineup of speakers, and we'll be re reaching out to industry friends uh, imminently here to see if uh, how they want to get involved with the conference. And then another new event that we're going to do in March, and this is in conjunction with the Houston Astros uh, and the Astros Foundation, uh, we will be working with them to create a, uh, a private invite only, what we're going to call the Daniel Energy Partners Texas Barbecue Corral. Uh, the idea is we're going to have a nice setup on the 18th hole uh, with a great viewing of the 11th green where we'll bring in a handful of companies to cook uh, and, and have a nice private party. And I think the great thing about this is 100 percent of the, 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 the money goes to the Houston Astros Foundation, which supports local Houston charities uh and then the uh the other thing is the con the, the the outing the golf tournament is two weeks before the masters and so hopefully that's a great spot on the calendar which should attract a you know a really healthy list of uh, of great golfers and so we'll be reaching out to clients here in the coming weeks to to raise awareness for that but i think this could be a really fun event that supports a good cause so that's those are the near-term events yeah, that's the good the good DEP event plug. Thanks, John. So we'll do one more with you. Why don't you tell us about the background of the upstream planning conference? I know I, I had a tough time with the uh, with the title. I know others did as well. But why don't you tell us a little bit why, about why DEP introduced it? And then we can kind of start going into what our impressions were. Yeah, so the background is maybe sometime this summer, we were out on the road visiting with some of our EMP contacts. and. Uh, one of the larger EMP companies, they asked us to come up with a supply chain conference. And um, and, the, and the view was that there wasn't really a lot that were content driven. And that's what they were more focused on is getting is the information flow as opposed to, you know, the the, the booths and, and the koozies. And there's a place for those types of events, by the way. I'm not trying to critique that. But they wanted something more intimate, and so we we channel checked, did some testing the waters with other EMP companies, and the view was 
it was fairly uniform. Everybody was embraced the idea. So we scrambled to find a venue. We ended up finding a, uh, a, a spot at Las Colinas. And so had, I don't know, probably close to 175 participants come. I'd say maybe 70-ish, 75% were EMP related. And it was an opportunity to go through and talk about the major categories uh, of spend for an EMP operator. You know, and we focused on lower 48. So we had panels to frack, to sand, uh, to, to uh, electronic components, to services such as cool tubing workover, uh, logistics, uh, OCTG, among others. You know, and, and really, it was an unfiltered opportunity for people in the industry to speak about threats and opportunities, uh, raise awareness to the EMP community, what they should be thinking about or considering as, as we roll into 24. And the feedback was was positive, which we're very blessed to have, have received. So we'll do it again in 24. Uh, we are looking, we'd like to do it at Las Colinas, but we, we don't know about availability. So we will find something for sure, uh, targeting late September, early October, which better aligns with the planning cycle for the EMP industry. And so for the first time, we're pretty pleased. And like you mentioned, we'll, we'll come up with a, a new name for the conference uh, for next year, but the, uh, the idea will be the same. So that's the background. Yeah, cool. I mean, look, one of the things that we, when, when you guys were out on the road, you know, hearing about some of these guys, what they wanted to do, it, it seemed like mid November was a really good time to do it as well. Like kind of right in the middle of the budget season for the EMP guys. But I guess as we got a little feedback, they were kind of like, now it should be a little earlier because we, they had been thinking about some of this stuff, but hadn't quite, you know, it would have been good if we had done it probably three weeks, four weeks earlier to, to help them out a little bit more. Right. All right. Well, now we've got the background, you know, Sean and Blake are here. One thing that we did, you know, in preparation for this was everyone kind of sat around and thought about all of those panels, John, that you just mentioned, you know, we've all got our notes here. Um, thought that it'd be a good idea to just say, all right, let's take three of our favorite points from each panel. Let's find three good panels. What did, what were our main takeaways and what did, what did we like about this thing? And what were some good nuggets or Scooby snacks that we've, we've picked up through, through about a full day and 12 panels, um, of, of content. So Sean, why don't I let you give it a first shot and then we can kind of go around. Well, I think, I think. Thanks, Bill. Um, I think the main thing from my biggest takeaway from the entire event was probably more um, as we rolled into this, I think a lot of people have been thinking about um, activity picking up in Q4 uh, or in Q1, uh, sorry, uh, kind of seasonal slowdown in Q4 from an activity standpoint, a pickup in Q1. Um, and what I would say is that the theme coming out of most of the panels was it's pretty boring right now. And I think that was a thing that, that kind of struck me. And boring can be good in this industry. Boring doesn't necessarily mean bad. Um, but I think when I think about the, the bigger picture takeaway, um, I, I do think there's going to be a little bit of what I would call um, a delay in activity gains. I mean, coming into this conference, I think our expectation was for the industry to add 50 to 60 rigs in 2024. Um, I think when I listened to a lot of the panels broadly, 
uh, I would say um, 50 to 60 rigs might be a long putt, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Um, I think, you know, one of the um, guys that was on our, you know, we had, I'll just kind of start in, yeah. dive right in with the, kind of the, the buy side panel. We had Brian McShane come in from uh, Encompass Capital, and we were super happy to have him on a panel. I think one of the things he said that I thought was interesting um, in terms, I asked him about scale. Does scale matter in this market? And he said, absolutely. You need to be at least a billion-dollar market cap company to really matter. Um, I think the other thing I asked him about was on the M&A front, um, you know, how are you guys thinking about it? And he's actually, he said something very interesting. He said, we're actually kind of rooting against M&A because, you know, M&A for them means fewer companies to choose from uh, and differentiate in, in the public markets. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then the other one was just kind of how, when you when you look at buying a company, um, he, he said something that kind of caught my attention. I said, what do you look for when you're actually buying a company? And and he said two things. He said, one, they have, need to have a core competency and the management teams uh, need to be aligned and they need to be able to take, I thought this was interesting, they need to be able to take share in a down market. Like that's, a, I think, something we don't always think about, but like being able to kind of take share in a down market is kind of an interesting comment. And then I kind of put him in the... In, in the seat of a kind of EMP CEO and said, Hey, if you were a CEO of an EMP company, you weren't an investor, given what you know today, how would you be advising your supply chain folks uh, for 24? And he said, I wouldn't be in a huge hurry. Um, and I think I would be looking to lock in and high grading my equipment in the second half of 24. So I thought that was kind of a, a good thing to start with. One other thing that I thought, uh was interesting from from that panel was um a conversation about access uh to capital and capital potentially coming back into the space uh in the the public markets and what we heard from him a little sort of inside baseball was that uh you know two three four five years ago there was uh, a real shrinking of the number of teams that were focused on oil and gas and energy generally and uh, that is shifting now. Over the last year, year and a half, a lot of the big hedge funds, a lot of the big uh, institutional investors have been looking for experienced teams to put money to work in the space. So while we haven't actually seen that show up in you know, public company valuations or, um, you know, or liquidity necessarily, I think it's a good sign that potentially there's more money that will be looking and investing in the space going forward. Yeah. And then, I mean, just kind of rolling into some of the more, like, I think the the first real industry panel we we kicked off with was OCTG yep. and steel. And obviously that's kind of interesting because OCTG was the biggest um, um, kind of inflationary thing we saw in the space. I think the interest, one of the comments that came out of that panel I was amazed by is OCTG imports. I think, um, I think it was Brett from P2 said OCTG imports were up 300% from Q4 22 to Q1 of 23. Uh, and that's when obviously OCTG pricing went absolutely bonkers. Uh, that has come back down a bit. I think the one thing they mentioned was they they are anticipating a potential uh, increase by the mills in Q1. I thought that was interesting. And then the other thing that caught my attention big time, and I think it caught the room's attention, is these guys have signed up some three to five year contracts. Right. That's just kind of unheard of in the oil 
oil, oil right. field. So um, I don't know, Blake, do you have yeah. any, well, the any other, to add? The other thing that jumped out to me was you asked the question, how should we think about, um, from a geopolitical perspective, how should we think about um, the defense sector and the potential demand mm -hmm. increase um, for steel from the defense sector? And he said, um, you know, thinking about framing the market, oil and gas makes up something like eight to 10% of the demand mining, something like 35%. And defense is in the 20s, but obviously that can move higher. Um, and if we were to enter a period of increased spending by the defense sector, which is certainly not outside the realm of possibility, um, you know, that would certainly have an impact on availability and pricing. So something to at least keep keep in mind. Yeah, that was that was also an interesting thing. It kind of pervaded some of the other panels as well, is that they're competing for both capital and for, you know, raw materials with other, we meaning the oil and gas industry are competing with that with other industries as well. So it's not like, hey, you snap your fingers and these things just get solved. There are other people that are trying to do very similar things than, and that frankly might be a bigger industry and, and have a little bit more clout. And, the, and on that panel as well, the, uh, they reminded us that, you know, with respect to um, the oil and gas business, you know, that's not necessarily the volatility inherent in the oil and gas business makes them potentially a less uh, attractive uh, partner, end market yeah. or partner, right? So something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, John, John, any other um, comments? Uh, I mean, one of the things to, to, uh, that I've been watching and will hardly claim to be an expert is, you know, there's public commentary about U.S. steel potentially being bought and then how, what could the ramifications be, you know, should that happen depending on who the buyer is and what happens to the OCTG business and so forth. And so just a lot of things that are out there like defense that we, it's very hard for us to handicap, but could be, could have an impact on oil and gas consumers you know, six to 12 months from now. So, uh, and then, you know, Sean alluded to the comments about, you know, M&A and one reason for the downside uh, of too many deals might be the lack of investments for which the buy side can look at. But jumping ahead to one of the other panels that, where we had a couple of investment bankers speak about the market, um, it was comforting to hear that there are, you know, a number of companies, of course, they didn't name any of them, but a number of companies that might be exploring that path. And so therefore, you know, could you see some some new publicly traded businesses hit the market over the next 12 months or so? And so so while you might lose some companies now, you might see the recreation of public enterprises you know, a few quarters from now. And the other thing on that point with respect to new potential public company vehicles for investment, um, you know, the typical cycle when you have some of this, some of these big consolidating deals like we've seen this year, is uh, as bigger companies swallow up big or but slightly smaller companies. Oftentimes, there are asset packages that are carved out in various basins, um, and so the circle of life sort of continues. Right? We we know a lot of the private equity players. We know a lot of the teams. We know that um, you know there are teams that are being backed and. Part of the uh, part, part of the targeting process is asset packages coming out of these big consolidating deals. Yeah, for sure. And then I think just high level, I think the other takeaway on the M&A front, just as we kind of, I think we approach this on, on just about every panel, yeah. just Exxon, 
Pioneer, Chevron, Haas, like what does it mean? And I think my biggest takeaway from that was really just like the industry uh, is making a statement in a way with Exxon and Chevron doing these deals that they're in this fossil fuel game for maybe a longer period of time than than many of us had believed mm-hmm. or maybe not DEP, but some <laughs> people may may not believe that uh, fossil fuels are going to be around for for very long. And I think Exxon and Chevron are making a pretty big statement. So I, I think that's good for duration of the cycle. The other thing that I thought was noteworthy on that M&A panel was, um, you know, the the headline grabbing deals have really been upstream. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And um, but, you know, Sanjeev at Piper made the point that there's a lot of deals getting done um, sort of sub, you know, under the radar, subscale in the service side that we're not just that we're just not hearing about deals that are characterized by, you know, kind of high synergies, low multiples, consolidating deals where, you know, one plus one can potentially equal um, two and a half or three. And so I think that's important to, that's important to know. I mean, and we know it from some of our clients on the smaller scale on the service side, we know that some, uh, deals are getting done and some companies are getting put together that, um, you know, think they can make a better go of it yeah. a little bit more scale. Well, and I think the other thing that came up that was, it's always kind of fun to hear this, but too many CEOs per barrel. I yeah. think you said the same could probably be said for kind of GNA as a percentage of revenue or market cap in the OFS space. I think there's no doubt that the the industry on the on the oil field service side, while there's been some smaller deals, I think there's probably need to continue to see some consolidation, right? Yeah, it tends to, and it's always been this way, right? It tends OFS M and A tends to lag the EMP side, and we're seeing that today. I mean, you know, it's been the last two years really where we've seen a lot of big yeah. EMP M and A deals, and we have not seen as many large outstand at you know x the patterson next year deal yeah. you know larger ofs type of deals um which sanjeev pointed out as well um in in his comments so that was a really interesting i mean again you kind of the audience that we were talking to here is the supply chain guys at e, at emp shops you know the the service and the capital equipment providers for that you know that end up being the vendors there so it was interesting to see how they reacted to comments like that and how th- what that means for them as we kind of like as you think about all these different panels like how it kind of octg and then you know you go into frac sand and and pressure pumping and that all means something different for each of the, each of these guys yeah and it's definitely top of mind right it came yep. up in every panel if not um by the moderators than by questions from the audience right so so the topic is clearly on everybody's mind well let's maybe kind of roll into sand and pump yeah like what what were like my high level takeaways on the sand side i think we're there seems to be a little bit of an oversupply today um, Mm -hmm. that we're 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 kind of working through i thought the other thing that caught my attention on the on the one of the, the sand panel um was just that we didn't we didn't go into a deep dive on wet versus dry sand. Right. It seems to be a hot topic, right? I mean, that seems to be a topic that everyone's talking about. You know, does wet sand work? Does it not work? I think from an EMP perspective, my my kind of dumb guy uh, analogy here is if it doesn't work, the EMPs won't do it very long. Yeah, right? these guys don't like to waste money in any way, shape, or form. So we'll kind of see. One interesting comment I think came from one of the guys uh, out of the. One of our guys from the northern white side said, hey, uh, wet sand doesn't work very well when it's frozen. So right. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. He's so yeah, so he's obviously supplying more in the northeast and he's yeah, that doesn't want 
doesn't look at it the same way. But one of the efficiencies that I, I thought caught my attention on the sand side, and uh, I think it is interesting. I think we, we talked a little bit about like, you know, the, the sand um, kind of logistics is really a big piece. Like, you know, from the sand mine to the blender, mm -hmm. a lot can go wrong. Right. And so I think there was some good, you know, kind of brought attention to the logistics side of the sand business. And I think uh, they were talking about kind of, uh, efficiencies and i think right. one of them i think it was tss mentioned that you know the longer we're on location the bigger pads it's super helpful but they're also moves between pads i think they've gone from six to seven days uh to now they're 24 to 30 hours uh so they're kind of keeping the machines running and so they're a part of that efficiency gain that that we talk about on the pumping side and maybe right. that's a good foray into you know let's talk about pressure pumping yeah that's a good good moment on that yeah john why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about the pressure pumping side you go, you go sand we talk efficiencies and now like i mean it's a perfect time to talk about that well i think the thing that jumped out to me on the frac side and it, it permeated with some of the other panels too is the uh you know we, we we've talked for a long time about capital discipline which for the number of years was the emp industry you know living within cash flow returning cash to shareholders but in the last couple of years, you've seen more chatter with the public OFS companies about capital discipline. I thought, that, you know, Sam touched on it well, and, and he, you know, this is a comment they made on their earnings call too, but reducing, you know, uh, fleets as opposed to chasing pricing down in the spot market, right? And, and you heard that from some other companies during earnings season as well. And, and it's just a real interesting contrast right now in the frac market because you have the I'm going to call the emission-friendly higher-end fleets, which you know generally are supported by dedicated agreements, uh, and then you have you know other fleets, which we I'll characterize as legacy equipment, um, you know, different vintage, if you will, right? And I'm just I'm trying to be polite about it, but in that market, you've seen pricing come off significantly. We wrote about this actually last night that you know as we as we're out talking to some people there are some growing stresses emerging with that segment of the market um i've seen simple things on linkedin companies talking about you know, equipment packages for sale or you know a collections agency trying to track down money for a company whatever it might be right something what's true what's not true can't precisely say but the feedback from smaller guys is it, it's tough and then you contrast that with the larger folks that are reinvesting in technology, like both Petro and Liberty, which are on our panel, they're both moving forward with continued upgrades of equipment and the electrification of their fleets. And so there's just a bit of a, you know, a growing disconnect, if you will. And it, it you know, reminds me back of uh, when I started in the business writing research, you had Helmer campaign, you know, the first mover on building new drilling rigs. And for a period of time, everyone sort of poo-pooed that. And then everyone ended up doing it. And you've now started to see that play out on the electric market, on the electric track side. And it's just, it's, it's interesting to see service companies willing to lay down equipment rather than just bid it lower for the sake of market share. And uh, that's not uniform across the entire space, but it's, it, it's, the, it's the healthy thing to do. So that's what jumped out to me the most from their discussion. Uh, I don't know if others had a different takeaway. Uh, the one point I would make is I'm conf 
consistently surprised by the efficiency numbers that are cited by so many of these guys. I mean, I think we heard, um, you know, averaging 20 hours a day. Liberty told us they had a crew hit 671 hours in a month. It's 93%. Uptime. Yeah, it was funny. It was funny watching them do the math in real time (laughs) on the panel. Figure out, hey, wait, how many hours are there? How many hours are there in a month? Yeah, seven hundred twenty. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it just speaks to these guys have gotten uh, both the operators and the uh, service providers have gotten so good and so efficient. It's just really. It's really interesting. And, and I think on the land drilling side, on the efficiency gains, we talked a little bit about this, and I think yeah. this is interesting. Just it's it's not just, it, you know, I think we're in the later innings on the brute force, horsepower, engines, things like that. But we're I think what we heard from those guys was it really feels like you're in the early innings on the digital automation and analytics side. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're going to continue to see opportunities. I mean, you can't go from, you know, 10 days down to zero. But, you know, I think from an from an analytics and digital side, that's where we're gonna see probably more efficiency gains continuing. I think the other thing, the bigger takeaway I had was it's not just uh, the horsepower on the rig, it's a combination of you know yep. uh, drill bits, it's a combination of top drives, it's a combination of rotary steerable. All those things have been kind of um, uh, contributing to the efficiency gains on the drilling side. Um, I think one of the things on the drilling panel as well, just the inflation biggest drivers have been labor and uh, R&M. I think yep. it was half labor, half R&M. And if, if in a world where the rig count starts to come back, I'm not sure you you really see much improvement there. Mm-hmm. It was one of the things we heard, which I think. Both are sticky, right? Yeah. Yeah, both are pretty sticky. So um, that's kind of interesting as well on, from the land drilling side. Well, the, one of the things that was interesting on that efficiency side too, like that started permeating all of the panels is that you need this to be a well-oiled machine from frac sand to the pressure pumping from drilling to the drill bit, like all of these things in order to get these efficiency gains, they all need to be working pretty well together. Otherwise, you know, if something falls apart, then you know, maybe that one month you were you were fantastic. And if if you're missing something the next month, it could be a big problem. And I felt like there was a lot of talk. I know we've we've probably all heard this before, a partnership between, you know, service providers and EMPs, but that's super important if you want to keep these efficiencies going. Um well one of the they wanted the supply chain on the supply chain panel with um with with the uh, Chesapeake and, and Continental one of the guys actually we we talked about like what's the biggest change in the last five years yep. in terms of how you think about supplying or, or you know um securing equipment and he said you know it's kind of interesting no one cares about supply chain until we run out of toilet paper i thought that was pretty funny <laughs> and then he said the biggest difference today in his opinion was the more strategic relationships between ofs and emp like they're not just and i think on the, one of the uh another panel i heard it's you know it's not just transactional but it's actually a strategic decision mm-hmm. and that that i think is resonated throughout the day as well yep. so i think to your point bill having a a more kind of partnership or um strategic alliance with your service providers as an emp company can be super helpful in the efficiency game yeah. And as these completions continue to get more complicated right. and the operations uh, around completions uh, continue to get more complex, you know, you need more visibility and more partnership between the service provider and the upstream operator. Right. And I guess I was also a little surprised 
by one of the questions on the pumping panel. I think it came from the audience. It was like, hey, if I want to get a pressure pumping fleet in the first quarter of 23, you know, what is that? Or 24, 24. What does that look like? And and I think it both Liberty and ProPetro like were sold out. Right. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I think the other thing, because we're going to, we're keeping this to 30 minutes that jumped out to me was the, uh, uh, just some of the comments about labor. I thought the particularly when you think of the the more labor intensive businesses, such as you know well servicing coal tubing, adhering those to companies talk about particularly on well servicing the just the continued headaches of finding good people, and and the high turnover. I think one actually one of the drillers, if I'm not mistaken, they I think they said they hopefully you guys have the numbers that they hired in 23. Or made offers like sixty thousand people. Sixty thousand. Sixty thousand yep. people in to the get top, a thousand. Of the, top of the funnel. Yeah. yeah. To get to something less than a thousand. Yeah. Right. And, and then yeah, so just again, how difficult is that? Plus, then you you see the turnover where people sign up, go to work, find out in two to four weeks that this isn't for them, and they quit. And you know the the, the cost of finding the people, and the cost of training the people, and then. Just the headaches of when you, you start up and then you quit, and, and just the challenges of managing that. And uh, you know, sometimes it gets lost on, on folks like us as we sit in the ivory towers sometimes, but uh, just pretty, I thought it was pretty palatable. And then I, I would say before we kind of go into letting Bill talk about the uh, over under kind of crystal ball questions, yeah. which we all love. Um, the one thing that Blake and I were laughing, uh, this the water panel uh, or water management panel, the amazing thing to me that we heard on that one was 5% production growth equals 20% growth in water, like the yeah. produced water. Like, it's amazing to me. Like, we, I think the water is a big issue out in West Texas, and yeah. obviously that panel highlighted that and uh the industry is doing a really good job today of, of figuring that out but man that's a, th th those are some staggering uh yeah stats yeah i thought it was he, the other comment that was made by one of the panelists with respect to their some of the land positions they own is that there's multiple parties looking to develop sand mines on the properties if you remember that and yeah. uh, i would assume those would be the proximity mines it was not clear but just, you know, and, and whether it happens or doesn't, I mean, it wasn't that it was a definitive move forward in new sand capacity, but that people were evaluating expanding capacity on that acreage, which, you know, we'll say that that, that was interesting as well. Uh, before, uh, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting a look from Bill. I want to throw in one more random point that I thought was <laughs> pretty wild and really jumped out at me. Um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about electrification. Um, you know, it's coming up more and more frequently. Power is an issue. And uh, on the panel, somebody said that they think Texas overhead power in infrastructure is going to need to double in order to meet um, the growing demand, both, you know, in West Texas for a lot of this stuff. Um, I thought that that number was pretty wild. Yeah, double by 2040. Yeah. Right. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of power build out. A lot of power. Well, yeah. Bill, thanks for posting us. I know yeah. we want to get into the kind of crystal ball stuff. So, uh, to keep it within the 30 minutes, which I think we're already over, but it's okay. We'll be close. We'll be close. Well, yeah. So one of the things, and and I'm going to give Sean a lot of credit for this. You you asked this of pretty much every panel. And so again, so we're now in, you know, this is mid-November. 
you know, the Baker Hughes rig count is right around, you know, 595 at this point. Yep. It was somewhere right around there. Yep. Yeah, 597 now. And the question was given to pretty much all the panelists. And then we also did a little survey at the end, which we've never done before, which was kind of nice to get some data on. The question was, by the end, by December 31st, 2024, what is the over-under on Baker Hughes onshore rig count? 650 was the line. And then asked the same question for WTI at 82 and at Henry Hub Natural Gas at 375. So it was interesting getting all those numbers. And again, you know, we kind of had the finger in the air when, when you're asking people and we all kind of jotted some things down, but it was nice to actually ask people afterwards that weren't on panels and just say, all right, people, tell us what you think. And so we got about 47 responses, which is, again, pretty good. We, we thought that was really, really, uh, really good. So the only so 34 percent of the responses took the over on the on the rig count, and that meant 66 percent were under 650 rigs by the end of 2024. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of, I was like, well, let's normally we think the OFS guys will be a little bit more bullish on that. It was 40% of the OFS guys said that it was going to be over and 60% said under, and then the EMP guys, 30% over 70% under. So one of the things that I thought was interesting and those got better data just from watching the panels and seeing the service providers on the panels and how they uh, position themselves on the over versus under, um, you know, there were, it was more of a mixed bag, uh, this, you know, this go around with, you know, some of them taking the over, some of them taking the under. Um, when we did this same exercise a couple months ago in Midland. And by the way, we used 675. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had uh, most of the service providers taking the over. So I think it just, that makes sense, right? I right. Mean, look, the commodity price, you yeah. down 20 bucks since then, yep. right? Yep. So it makes sense, but I just thought it was noteworthy to see the, the evolution over the last few months. Right, yeah. right. And all right, so now to the next one is, uh, is oil price. So the, the over under the line was set at 82. And so uh, for this one though, it's interesting. So you, you've got the most people saying under on the rig count. This one we have 75% saying over 82 and only 20, 25% on the under. Hmm. So that was, that was interesting. And then, then you go to Nat gas and you've got, you've got 70% on the over on that gas and 30% on the under, which is a little like kind of wonky that you would yeah. take that. What? Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting when you think about the oil, you know, I actually at, at the uh, event itself, I had lunch with three public companies. I won't tell you who they are, but, um, and all three of them at lunch, I can, did my own little survey at lunch as well. Yep. And, and not, not on the oil and gas or rig count, but I just asked them, would would your cadence change or your activity level change and at what commodity price and i had th all three of them basically said between 70 and 90 these are publicly traded companies though mm -hmm. right so they're they're not going to deviate from the plan that much we probably don't change activity either way between 70 and 90. yeah i thought that was kind of interesting we know the answer is different with some of the private operators For sure right? right uh but that's a noteworthy data point yeah on the nat gas side uh what i would say is I mean, I think generally we agree uh, that 
natural gas, the setup is pretty good into back, back half of 24 and into 25. Um, we can all see the LNG demand coming. Um, but it is noteworthy that it's a fairly consensus uh it's a fairly consensus view. Pretty much everyone expects gas to be stronger in the back half of next year. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a little scary to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, well, look, we tried to keep it pretty tight here, but, you know, I think we did a, a decent job. John's already kind of given us a little bit of a heads up on DEP events for the rest of 2024 and uh, or the rest of 23. I'm already thinking about 2024. Um, you know, we've got Thrive coming up, Midland. Um, our usual um, bevy of, of things that are happening. But, uh, you know, we're going to do a couple more of these through through the end of the year. And we're excited about, you know, everything that's happening at DEP. Well, and I would say, Bill, one last thing is just thank you to all the, the companies that came out yeah. and guys that sat on panels. We can't thank you enough. Um, I'd like to really thank TSS and um, um, get out. A yeah. bit out, yeah, for the the sponsorship, and you know, again, none of this is possible without the company showing up and and being willing to talk. So, right. thank you to all of our folks out there that participated. Yeah, no, we really, we really loved it. We're gonna do it again next year. It's just a matter of where and when, but we'll we'll keep everyone posted. And with that, we'll end our latest episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs>